Section 12 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Troop in New York City. Section 12. Theodore Roosevelt, December 6, 1904. Part 2. In pursuing the set plan to make the city of Washington an example to other American municipalities, several points should be kept in mind by the legislators. In the first place, the people of this country should clearly understand that no amount of industrial prosperity, and above all, no leadership in international industrial competition, can in any way atone for the sapping of the vitality of those who are usually spoken of as the working classes. The farmers, the mechanics, the skilled and unskilled laborers, the small shopkeepers, make up the bulk of the population of any country, and upon their well-being, generation after generation, the well-being of the country and the race depends. Rapid development in wealth and industrial leadership is a good thing, but only if it goes hand in hand with improvement and not deterioration, physical and moral. The overcrowding of cities and the draining of country districts are unhealthy and even dangerous symptoms in our modern life. We should not permit overcrowding in cities. In certain European cities, it is provided by law that the population of towns shall not be allowed to exceed a very limited density for a given area, so that the increase in density must be continually pushed back into a broad zone around the center of the town this zone having great avenues or parks within it. The death rate statistics show a terrible increase in mortality and especially in infant mortality in overcrowded tenements. The poorest families in tenement houses live in one room, and it appears in these one-room tenements the average death rate for a number of given cities at home and abroad is about twice what it is in a two-room tenement, four times what it is in a three-room tenement and eight times what it is in a tenement consisting of four rooms or over. These figures vary somewhat for different cities, but they approximate in each city those given above, and in all cases the increase of mortality and especially of infant mortality with the decrease in the number of rooms used by the family and with the consequent overcrowding is startling. The slum exacts a heavy total of death from those who dwell therein. And this is the case not merely in the great crowded slums of high buildings in New York and Chicago, but in the alley slums of Washington. In Washington, people cannot afford to ignore the harm that this causes. No Christian and civilized community can afford to show a happy-go-lucky lack of concern for the youth of today. For, if so, the community will have to pay a terrible penalty of financial burden and of social degradation in the tomorrow. There should be severe child labor and factory inspection laws. It is very desirable that married women should not work in factories. The prime duty of the man is to work, to be the breadwinner. The prime duty of the woman is to be the mother, the housewife. All questions of tariff and finance sink into utter insignificance when compared with the tremendous, the vital importance of trying to shape conditions so that these two duties of the man and of the woman can be fulfilled under reasonably favorable circumstances. If a race does not have plenty of children, or if the children do not grow up, or if when they grow up they are unhealthy in body and stunted or vicious in mind, then that race is decadent. 
and no heaping up of wealth, no splendor of momentary material prosperity can avail in any degree as offsets. The Congress has the same power of legislation for the District of Columbia which the state legislatures have for the various states. The problems incident to our highly complex modern industrial civilization, with its manifold and perplexing tendencies, both for good and for evil, are far less sharply accentuated in the city of Washington than in most other cities. For this very reason, it is easier to deal with the various phases of these problems in Washington, and the District of Columbia government should be a model for the other municipal governments of the nation. In all such matters as supervision of the housing of the poor, the creation of small parks in the districts inhabited by the poor, in laws affecting labor, in laws providing for the taking care of the children, in truant laws, and in providing schools. In the vital matter of taking care of children, much advantage could be gained by a careful study of what has been accomplished in such states as Illinois and Colorado by the juvenile courts. The work of the juvenile court is really a work of character building. It is now generally recognized that young boys and young girls who go wrong should not be treated as criminals, not even necessarily as needing reformation, but rather as needing to have their characters formed, and for this end to have them tested and developed by a system of probation. Much admirable work has been done in many of our commonwealths by earnest men and women who have made a special study of the needs of those classes of children which furnish the greatest number of juvenile offenders, and therefore the greatest number of adult offenders, and by their aid, and by profiting by the experiences of the different states and cities in these matters, it would be easy to provide a good code for the District of Columbia. Several considerations suggest the need for a systematic investigation into an improvement of housing conditions in Washington. The hidden residential alleys are breeding grounds of vice and disease and should be opened into minor streets. For a number of years, influential citizens have joined with the district commissioners in the vain endeavor to secure laws permitting the condemnation of insanitary dwellings. The local death rates, especially from preventable diseases, are so unduly high as to suggest that the exceptional wholesomeness of Washington's better sections is offset by bad conditions in her poorer neighborhoods. A special commission on housing and health conditions in the national capital would not only bring about the reformation of existing evils, but would also formulate an appropriate building code to protect the city from mammoth brick tenements and other evils which threaten to develop here as they have in other cities. That the nation's capital should be made a model for other municipalities is an ideal which appeals to all patriotic citizens everywhere and such a special commission might map out and organize the city's future development in lines of civic social service, just as Major L'Enfant and the recent Park Commission planned the arrangement of her streets and parks. It is mortifying to remember that Washington has no compulsory school attendance law, and that careful inquiries indicate the habitual absence from school of some 20% of all children between the ages of 8 and 14. It must be evident to all who consider the problems of neglected child life or the benefits of compulsory education in other cities that one of the most urgent needs of the national capital is a law requiring the school attendance of all children, this law to be enforced by attendance agents directed by the Board of Education. Public playgrounds are necessary means for the development of wholesome citizenship in modern cities. 
It is important that the work inaugurated here through voluntary efforts should be taken up and extended through congressional appropriation of funds sufficient to equip and maintain numerous convenient small playgrounds upon land which can be secured without purchase or rental. It is also desirable that small vacant places be purchased and reserved as small park playgrounds in densely settled sections of the city which now have no public open spaces and are destined soon to be built up solidly. All these needs should be met immediately. To meet them would entail expenses, but a corresponding saving could be made by stopping the building of streets and leveling of ground for purposes largely speculative in outlying parts of the city. There are certain offenders whose criminality takes the shape of brutality and cruelty towards the weak who need a special type of punishment. The wife-beater, for example, is inadequately punished by imprisonment, for imprisonment may often mean nothing to him while it may cause hunger and want to the wife and the children who have been the victims of his brutality. Probably some form of corporal punishment would be the most adequate way of meeting this kind of crime. The Department of Agriculture has grown into an educational institution with a faculty of 2,000 specialists, making research into all the sciences of production. The Congress appropriates directly and indirectly six millions of dollars annually to carry on this work. It reaches every state and territory in the Union, and the islands of the sea lately come under our flag. Cooperation is had with the state experiment stations and with many other institutions and individuals. The world is carefully searched for new varieties of grains, fruits, grasses, vegetables, trees, and shrubs suitable to various localities in our country and market benefit to our producers has resulted. The activities of our age in lines of research have reached the tillers of the soil and inspired them with ambition to know more of the principles that govern the forces of nature with which they have to deal. And nearly half of the people of this country devote their energies to growing things from the soil. Until a recent date, little has been done to prepare these millions for their life work. In most lines of human activity, college-trained men are the leaders. The farmer had no opportunity for special training until the Congress made provision for it 40 years ago. During these years, progress has been made and teachers have been prepared. Over 5,000 students are in attendance at our state agricultural colleges. The federal government expends $10 million annually towards this education and for research in Washington and in the several states and territories. The Department of Agriculture has given facilities for postgraduate work to 500 young men during the last seven years, preparing them for advanced lines of work in the department and in the state institutions. The facts concerning meteorology and its relations to plant and animal life are being systematically inquired into. Temperature and moisture are controlling factors in all agricultural operations. The seasons of the cyclones of the Caribbean Sea and their paths are being forecasted with increasing accuracy. The cold winds that come from the north are anticipated, and their times and intensity told to farmers, gardeners, and fruiterers in all southern localities. 
we sell $250 million worth of animals and animal products to foreign countries every year, in addition to supplying our own people more cheaply and abundantly than any other nation is able to provide for its people. Successful manufacturing depends primarily on cheap food, which accounts to a considerable extent for our growth in this direction. The Department of Agriculture, by careful inspection of meats, guards the health of our people and gives clean bills of health to deserving exports. It is prepared to deal promptly with imported diseases of animals and maintain the excellence of our flocks and herds in this respect. There should be an annual census of the livestock of the nation. We sell abroad about $600 million worth of plants and their products every year. Strenuous efforts are being made to import from foreign countries such grains as are suitable to our varying localities. Seven years ago, we bought three-fourths of our rice by helping the rice growers on the Gulf Coast to secure seeds from the Orient suited to their conditions, and by giving them adequate protection, they now supply home demand and export to the islands of the Caribbean Sea and to other rice-growing countries. Wheat and other grains have been imported from light rainfall countries to our lands in the west and the southwest that have not grown crops because of light precipitation, resulting in an extensive addition to our cropping area and our homemaking territory that cannot be irrigated. 10 million bushels of first-class macaroni wheat were grown from these experimental importations last year. Fruits suitable to our soils and climates are being imported from all the countries of the Old World. The fig from Turkey, the almond from Spain, the date from Algeria, the mango from India. We are helping our fruit growers to get their crops into European markets by studying methods of preservation through refrigeration, packing, and handling, which have been quite successful. We are helping our hop growers by importing varieties that ripen earlier and later than the kinds they have been raising, thereby lengthening the harvesting season. The cotton crop of the country is threatened with root rot, the ballworm, and the boll weevil. Our pathologist will find immune varieties that will resist the root disease, and the bollworm can be dealt with, but the boll weevil is a serious menace to the cotton crop. It is a Central American insect that has become acclimated in Texas and has done great damage. A scientist of the Department of Agriculture has found the weevil at home in Guatemala being kept in check by an ant, which has been brought to our cotton fields for observation. It is hoped that it may serve a good purpose. The soils of the country are getting attention from the farmer's standpoint, and interesting results are following. We have duplicates of the soils that grow the wrapper tobacco in Sumatra and the filler tobacco in Cuba. It will be only a question of time when the large amounts paid to these countries will be paid to our own people. The reclamation of alkali lands is progressing to give object lessons to our people in methods by which worthless lands may be made productive. The insect friends and enemies of the farmer are getting attention. The enemy of the San Jose scale was found near the Great Wall of China and is now cleaning up all of our orchards. The fig fertilizing insect imported from Turkey has helped to establish an industry in California that amounts to from 50 to 100 tons of dried figs annually and is extending over the Pacific coast. A parasitic fly from South Africa is keeping in subjection the black scale, the worst pest of the orange and lemon industry in California. 
Careful, preliminary work is being done towards producing our own silk. The mulberry is being distributed in large numbers. Eggs are being imported and distributed. Improved reels were imported from Europe last year, and two expert reelers were brought to Washington to reel the crop of cocoons and teach the art to our own people. The crop reporting system of the Department of Agriculture is being brought closer to accuracy every year. It has 250,000 reporters selected from people in eight vocations in life. It has arrangements with most European countries for interchange of estimates, so that our people may know as nearly as possible with what they must compete. During the two and a half years that have elapsed since the passage of the Reclamation Act, rapid progress has been made in the surveys and examinations of the opportunities for reclamation in the 13 states and three territories of the arid west. Construction has already been begun on the largest and most important of the irrigation works, and plans are being completed for works which will utilize the funds now available. The operations are being carried on by the Reclamation Service, a corps of engineers selected through competitive civil service examinations. This corps includes experienced consulting and constructing engineers, as well as various experts in mechanical and legal matters, and is composed largely of men who have spent most of their lives in practical affairs connected with irrigation. The larger problems have been solved, and it now remains to execute with care, economy, and thoroughness the work which has been laid out. All important details are being carefully considered by boards of consulting engineers, selected for their thorough knowledge and practical experience. Each project is taken up on the ground by competent men and viewed from the standpoint of the creation of prosperous homes and of promptly refunding to the Treasury the cost of construction. The Reclamation Act has been found to be remarkably complete and effective, and so broad in its provisions that a wide range of undertakings has been possible under it. At the same time, economy is guaranteed by the fact that the funds must ultimately be returned to be used over again. It is the cardinal principle of the forest reserve policy of this administration that the reserves are for use. Whatever interferes with the use of their resources is to be avoided by every possible means, but these resources must be used in such a way as to make them permanent. The forest policy of the government is just now a subject of vivid public interest throughout the West and to the people of the United States in general. The forest reserves themselves are of extreme value to the present as well as to the future welfare of all the Western public land states. They powerfully affect the use and disposal of the public lands. They are of special importance because they preserve the water supply and the supply of timber for domestic purposes, and so promote settlement under the Reclamation Act. Indeed, they are essential to the welfare of every one of the great interests of the West. Forest reserves are created for two principal purposes. The first is to preserve the water supply. This is their most important use. The principal users of the water thus preserved are irrigation ranchers and settlers, cities and towns to whom their municipal water supplies are of the very first importance. Users and furnishers of water power and the users of water for domestic manufacturing, mining, and other purposes. All these are directly dependent upon the forest reserves. The second reason for which forest reserves are created is to preserve the timber supply for various classes of wood users. 
Among the more important of these are settlers under the Reclamation Act and other acts for whom a cheap and accessible supply of timber for domestic uses is absolutely necessary. Miners and prospectors who are in serious danger of losing their timber supply by fire or through export by lumber companies when timber lands adjacent to their mines pass into private ownership. Lumbermen, transportation companies, builders, and commercial interests in general. Although the wisdom of creating forest reserves is nearly everywhere heartily recognized, yet in a few localities there has been misunderstanding and complaint. The following statement is therefore desirable. The forest reserve policy can be successful only when it has the full support of the people of the West. It cannot safely, and should not in any case, be imposed upon them against their will. But neither can we accept the views of those whose only interest in the forest is temporary, who are anxious to reap what they have not sown and then move away, leaving desolation behind them. On the contrary, it is everywhere and always the interest of the permanent settler and the permanent businessman, the man with a stake in the country, which must be considered and which must decide. The making of forest reserves within railroad and wagon road land grant limits will hereafter, as for the past three years, be so managed as to prevent the issue under the Act of June 4, 1897, of base for exchange or loose selection, usually called scrip. In all cases where forest reserves within areas covered by land grants appear to be essential to the prosperity of settlers, miners, or others, the government lands within such proposed forest reserves will, as in the recent past, be withdrawn from sale or entry pending the completion of such negotiations with the owners of the land grants as will prevent the creation of so-called scrip. It was formerly the custom to make forest reserves without first getting definite and detailed information as to the character of land and timber within their boundaries. This method of action often resulted in badly chosen boundaries and consequent injustice to settlers and others. Therefore, this administration adopted the present method of first withdrawing the land from disposal, followed by careful examination on the ground and the preparation of detailed maps and descriptions before any forest reserve is created. I have repeatedly called attention to the confusion which exists in government forest matters because the work is scattered among three independent organizations. The United States is the only one of the great nations in which the forest work of the government is not concentrated under one department, in consonance with the plainest dictates of good administration and common sense. The present arrangement is bad from every point of view. Merely to mention it is to prove that it should be terminated at once. As I have repeatedly recommended, all the forest work of the government should be concentrated in the Department of Agriculture, where the larger part of that work is already done, where practically all of the trained foresters of the government are employed, where chiefly in Washington there is comprehensive first-class knowledge of the problems of the reserves acquired on the ground, where all problems relating to growth from the soil are already gathered, and where all the sciences auxiliary to forestry are at hand for prompt and effective cooperation. These reasons are decisive in themselves, but it should be added that the great organizations of citizens whose interests are affected by the forest reserves, such as the National Livestock Association, the National Wool Growers Association, the American Mining Congress, the National Irrigation Congress, and the National Board of Trade, have uniformly emphatically, and most of them repeatedly, expressed themselves in favor of placing all government forest work in the Department of Agriculture because of the peculiar adaptation of that department for it. 
It is true, also, that the forest services of nearly all the great nations of the world are under the respective departments of agriculture, while in but two of the smaller nations, and in one colony, are they under the Department of the Interior. This is the result of long and varied experience, and it agrees fully with the requirements of good administration in our own case. The creation of a forest service in the Department of Agriculture will have for its important results first, a better handling of all forest work, because it will be under a single head, and because the vast and indispensable experience of the department in all matters pertaining to the forest reserves, to forestry in general, and to other forms of production from the soil, will be easily and rapidly accessible. Second, the reserves themselves, being handled from the point of view of the man in the field instead of the man in the office, will be more easily and more widely useful to the people of the West than has been the case hitherto. Third, within a comparatively short time, the reserves will become self-supporting. This is important because continually and rapidly increasing appropriations will be necessary for the proper care of this exceedingly important interest of the nation, and they can and should be offset by returns from the national forests. Under similar circumstances, the forest possessions of other great nations form an important source of revenue to their governments. Every administrative officer concerned is convinced of the necessity for the proposed consolidation of forest work in the Department of Agriculture, and I myself have urged it more than once in former messages. Again, I commend it to the early and favorable consideration of the Congress. The interests of the nation at large, and of the West in particular, have suffered greatly because of the delay. I call the attention of the Congress again to the report and recommendation of the Commission on the Public Lands forwarded by me to the second session of the present Congress. The Commission has prosecuted its investigations actively during the past season, and a second report is now in an advanced stage of preparation. In connection with the work of the Forest Reserves, I desire again to urge upon the Congress the importance of authorizing the President to set aside certain portions of these reserves or other public lands as game refuges for the preservation of the bison, the wapiti, and other large beasts once so abundant in our woods and mountains and on our great plains and now tending toward extinction. Every support should be given to the authorities of the Yellowstone Park and their successful efforts at preserving the large creatures therein, and at very little expense, portions of the public domain in other regions which are wholly unsuited to agricultural settlement could be similarly utilized. We owe it to future generations to keep alive the noble and beautiful creatures which by their presence add such distinctive character to the American wilderness. The limits of the Yellowstone Park should be extended southwards. The canyon of the Colorado should be made a national park. And the national park system should include the Yosemite and as many as possible of the groves of giant trees in California. End of section 12. Recording by J. Troop in New York City.